This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to Get Sharp, a podcast focused on actionable, medium-term macro insights from industry leaders. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be back with my regular co-host, Dustin Reed. Dustin, who do we have talking to us today? Thanks very much, Matt. Great to be back with you doing another episode of Get Sharp. Today, we have Claudia Som with us as our guest, which is just a fantastic opportunity for her to join us. Dr. Som is the uh, initiator of the so-called Som Rule, the founder of Som Consulting. She's on Bloomberg uh, quite a bit on the opinion section and on a lot of other media uh, airwaves as well. She has policy and research expertise in macroeconomics, consumer spending, and household finance. The Som Rule, which we'll talk about today, uh, is generally seen as an automatic trigger for stimulus payments in recessions. And previous to her own consulting firm, she was a section chief at the Fed, where she oversaw a survey of household economics and decision-making. And before that, she worked for 10 years on the staff's macroeconomic forecast, which is uh, incredible. Dr. Som was uh, a senior economist at the Council of Economic Advisors for the White House and has a PhD in economics from Michigan and a bachelor's degree in economics, poli-sci, and German from Denison, it is an absolute privilege to have her here with us this afternoon. Thank you, Dr. Som, for joining us and welcome to Get Sharp. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited to be here today. I very much appreciate it. Absolutely. We are as well. Maybe I can start off with probably what is the the obvious question. And I think maybe some of our listeners may not be totally familiar with the rule, the SOM rule. So would you be able to go over kind of what the SOM rule is and how you and how you look at it? The SOM rule tells us with a high degree of accuracy, are we in a recession? It's not a forecast of a recession, but it tells us in the very early months, long before the official dating of a recession by the National Bureau of Economic Research in the U.S. would make its statement and earlier than we would say have two quarters of GDP declines, which is often kind of a technical recession. So it comes in early. As you mentioned, the reason the SOM rule exists, which I did not name, it was named after me, uh, (laughs) which is a little embarrassing, is that I was part of a proposal to create more automatic stabilizers. So these are policies designed to fight recessions, and they turn on and turn off automatically. They're tied to economic conditions. Congress doesn't have to get together during the crisis. They get together before and say, hey, here's the plan, what we'll do. Now, if I wrote my proposal was on sending out the stimulus checks, getting money out real fast to hundreds of millions of people. Well, if you're going to do that, you need to be able to say with some accuracy, hey, we're in a recession, send the checks. Mm-hmm. The government probably doesn't want to send out hundreds of billions of dollars and be like, oh, whoops, it was all right. fine. People would probably be okay with that. But like, it's sure. not, you know, so this for the proposal, if you go back to the 1970s, the SOM, which is based on the unemployment rate, and I'll give, you know, the, the specific definition. But if you go back to the 1970s, it has never triggered outside of a recession, and it has always triggered early in a recession. So it's very accurate. You go back to World War II, and it it's highly accurate, but not, there are some misses along the way. Okay, right. so the SOM rule is you take the three-month moving average of the unemployment rate. You want to smooth out the bumps and wiggles, not react to one month, get all worried about it. So you take the three-month moving average all the way back. You compare the most recent 
reading to the low over the prior 12 months. If that difference is a half a percentage point or more, we're in a recession. That's a really small increase relative in most recessions. The mildest one, as in 2001, was a two percentage point increase. Mm. But typically, they're more between three and four percentage points. And we've certainly lived through some recent ones that were well above that in increases. So you, you want to get, I mean, with policy, you want to get going as soon as you can. We can't really stop a recession, but we can make it less bad. Right. If we move fast. So that's the idea of the SOM rule. It has mm-hmm. gotten a lot of attention. I really <laughs> like, I am looking forward to the day that no one cares about the SOM rule, right? <laughs> like that they just, because for two years, I've been very active in discussions about, are we in a recession? Are we in a recession? Is one coming? And I kept saying, no, we are not in a recession. We don't need a recession to get inflation down. It is not inevitable. And so the SOM rule has been used in this debate about a recession. And I really haven't had anybody reach out and be like, hey, if we're in a recession, do we send the checks out? So it's a little off its use, but I'm here to be helpful to however I can be. And this is what the Psalm rule has turned into. The last thing I will say is we had a happy morning for the Psalm rule and Mm -hmm. for the world in general. So today was in the United States what we refer to as jobs day. So this is when the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out the employment situation report. And it was... Amazing. There were more. There were more than three hundred and fifty thousand jobs on net created in January in the United States, like far, far above the expectations for last month. And the unemployment rate held at three point seven percent. So the SOM rule is now point two percentage point, and that is far from a half a percentage point. Yeah, it's real good. So it seems like we're a while away from obviously triggering that, given given the metrics and given you know as you said the uh, the big the big NFP numbers uh, this morning. What would you what would you think needs to happen uh, from a labor market perspective to actually see the rule get triggered from here? Well, in a concrete sense, we'd have to get unemployment up to 4% and they'd kind of have to hang there okay. for three months. I mean, because okay. our low over the prior 12 months is three and a half percent in right. the three month averages. Mm-hmm. So of course it could go fat, get above four. I mean, like there are different comments, but it's got to average four uh, right. for it to trigger. We're not there. Now, as I said before, the SOM rule is not a forecast. Right. The same thing is, I mean, the payroll numbers, the unemployment, like these are not forecasts. They're telling us right now or technically last month, we are in a really good place. We don't have to stay in a really good place, but I mean, obviously the stronger things are, the more buffers we have. And like normally that would continue. Now, bad things can happen. We've had a real run of bad luck over the past four years of things coming out of nowhere, Uh like COVID war in Ukraine, you know, so things could happen that knock us off the course. But Uh uh, this was a really, this was a good one. One of the things I was doing to prepare for this, I was listening to your most recent conversations, and I noted one with uh, Barry Ritholtz on uh, Bloomberg, and you referenced the fact that the SOM rule, if if you had to pick a, an environment where it might not work, this very well might be the environment. Can you unpack that a little bit more, or have I misquoted you? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. We have lived through so many disruptions and really set off by the pandemic itself. And one place, or the SOM rule fits within the labor market. 
Mm-hmm. Right. That's where it's at. So we had in the very beginning of the pandemic, we had millions upon millions of people just walk away from work. Right. Like leave the labor force, caregiving responsibilities, um, not wanting to die as an example also. And and then as time has gone on, we've gotten people back in, you know, schools reopened eventually. And so people come back in. The United States had basically shut down immigration into the U.S. during the pandemic. I mean, for at first, presumably, like uh, health, public health reasons. And then it took a long time, even under the Biden administration, to get it going. It really wasn't until, well, and I will say in 2021 and on into 2022, we had labor shortages where mm. businesses, I mean, the consumers came back fast, bless, bless the American consumers. Uh, but the, <sighs> it turns out it's easier to come back and buy stuff than it is to come back and work. Like if you have reasons to be out. So then we had these labor shortages, which I had often said the best way to solve a labor shortage is with more labor, not fewer customers. The Fed can only get you fewer customers. But things like processing the immigrant work visas, Mm -hmm. getting work from home set up. So people, we've had peak employment rates for people with disabilities, for women. We've pulled marginalized groups in. Black men's labor force participation hit like an all-time high mm. last year. So we got the we got the workers back, which really took the I mean businesses can find the people they need. And so now we're kind of on the other side of the labor shortage because timing is really hard with all this. So you've got these more workers coming back. We saw this some last year. The unemployment rate has drifted up. Now it's taking time for some of the workers to find jobs. It's still good, but so we're working out these disruptions that started from COVID and first there were too few workers and other workers are coming back. And and so that could create a, and we've seen some of this, a drift up in the unemployment rate. And again, you know, we're at 3.7%, four is not that far away, right? And so there's a case that one can make where it drifts up to four, hangs there for a little while, and then either starts to come down or just stops there. That would not be a recession. Mm-hmm. A recession, like the the trigger is, you know, we get it in the beginning, but it keeps going. Like if mm-hmm. it doesn't keep going, like the MBR is not going to call a recession on 4% right. unemployment, right? Sure. So that could be it, quote unquote, breaking in that it triggers, but we get no recession. Um, I feel really confident that if we have, I mean, there's no way we could have a recession and it doesn't trigger Right. It's just no, like unemployment goes up. So, but it could be that it doesn't trigger or it doesn't kind of work in the sense it triggers no recession. The comparison I make, and I'm not just like trying to, you know, protect my, uh, my sanity when this thing breaks, um, is also, we saw a very uh, longstanding indicator of recessions is two, two quarters of GDP declines that happened. Mm-hmm. There was no recession. Right. That has not, we have not seen two quarters of negative GDP declines outside of a recession since 1947. Mm-hmm. So that was also a time we were working through a lot of disruptions from right. reopening the economy yeah, from of the war. So, and there are all kinds of other relationships. I mean, things have been really hard for someone like myself and peers and a lot of other people who are trying to understand the economy because relationships we have always been able to quote, quote, count on mm-hmm. are just haywire. Yeah. So it's definitely been challenging a lot of the textbooks, so to speak, kind of throw them, throw them out the window because it has the correlations haven't necessarily held up as maybe we learned when, when we went to school. Can I ask you, so I've seen a few people, maybe two to be fair, but talk about <laughs> the Psalm rule 
on the state level and maybe out of you know 50 states obviously maybe 20 or so states at the state level the rule has been triggered what do you think about that does the rule really apply at the state level or really should be used at the at the national level only i can assure you it's more than two people okay fair enough, this, fair enough. This, that i've seen anyway rule. i actually for a couple of weeks had muted psalm rule on twitter in my message right? because i was just like i can't i can't handle this and it actually was related to one of these state psalm rule things okay um so the thing there's nothing there's nothing magical about the trigger, the 0.5 percentage point. Mm-hmm. The logic, I think, is really useful. Depending on, like, I've seen it applied in other countries. Canada is one where I've seen this analysis done. And if you have the kind of labor market that when a recession hits, pe- more people become unemployed, mm-hmm. then the logic should work. It should. It, there's no way this thing works in Germany, right? A country okay. that keeps people on the job and not unemployed. Right. Okay, so but the thing is, I feel more comfortable when we try to apply it to other countries because there is something to calibrate it with. Right. And so I think in can and I haven't done this, I'm probably gonna sit down and do more of this at some point. But in Canada, as I understood it from some economists at the Bank of Canada, it was really more like six tenths was okay. the trigger, not five tenths totally fine. Like it would make sense. Um, and, uh, you know, so anyways, but for the States, there is no recession trigger. And frankly, I'm a bit of a purist when it comes to a recession. Uh A recession is a broad based contraction economic activity. Uh I don't, you can have like a regional contraction. You can have, but I just, I don't call that like Texas doesn't go into a recession when oil prices fall in my opinion. Uh But they right. certainly have, you know, less spending, less employment. And there's no way that even if I had these MBR datings of recessions by state, there's mm-hmm. no way they'd all have the same trigger. Right. Okay. And frankly, the data quality, like really small states, we don't have a lot we're going on there. That's that's a good point. Right. So there's just a lot of issues. And yet I I really wish my name weren't attached to these little things, but <laughs> the logic of it makes sense. Right. And it is important. And regional contractions, like we do want to pay attention to them because they can be this. You often don't see this. I did look a little bit, but like they like the kind of, quote unquote, canary in the coal mine. Like You can see a couple states before the Great Recession that had a big housing boom start to go first. And we're uh-huh. not talking a lot of lead time, but you can kind of see it. And then it spreads. Uh-huh. So California is one right now. And I had been looking at this for a while because the state sombral conversation is not, this has been going on for a little bit. Um, it's one that its unemployment rate has risen a notable amount, not like what you would see in like a recession broad, but you know what it would look like in a recession. Uh-huh. And yet it rose more than a half a percentage point. And so the conversation about it being in a recession, California is a really large economy. Sure. Right. And, and yet we can really point to, there's been, a rebalancing in the tech sector, but they did a ton of hiring because they thought the world had changed and we're all going to be at home. That didn't be the case. So they've done more firing. You've had in Silicon Valley, like money is no longer, like money actually is worth something now because of interest rates. In California, there are some industries that have been going through some turmoil. Like they're trying to get their employees. So they've, you know, laid off workers and yet and those often show up in the headlines in the U.S. Like we get, you know, the layoffs in the tech sector. Sure. 
and yet this hasn't spread. And there's a very clear industry story that it would kind of make sense that it wouldn't spread in the same way. So it can be a good way to look at, oh, is the unemployment rate rising, which is never a good sign. And yet for those, like, I can't say it's a recession. I can't tell you what policy would do, but I can say, hey, go look under the hood and see what's going on. So I don't find it, I mean, I pay attention to it, but it shouldn't be, like the trigger isn't a half a percentage point. You can just say, hey, we've got unemployment rise. I I don't know. There's something about it that um, I kind of, not rubs me the wrong way, but it's like, that's not what this SOM rule is for. And I don't want to give people a sense of false precision or false comfort. Fair enough. That's probably true for every economic indicator. People anchor on them probably more than they ought to. I wanted to go to maybe uh, your thoughts on, on the Fed. Um, I was reading your latest Substack. It's excellent. I recommend it to everybody, uh, which is stay-at-home macro. And uh, you're fairly table-pounding on the the Fed should be thinking about cutting rates maybe before they, they will. Maybe go through your thoughts on that and maybe even revise them uh, since uh, I think that was before the FOMC meeting. Yes, yeah, so I'm not done with my table pounding. Okay. Um, and, my, <laughs> and it's true. The Substack post, I wrote it before the last Federal Market Committee meeting. That was this January, January 31st, this Wednesday. And I was spot on, right? In terms of what I said the Fed is likely to do. Mm-hmm. It's like super cautious. Wait forever. Um well, not forever, uh, but they're showing this. We need to be more confident. We need more good. Oh, we've got six months of good inflation data. That's not enough. We want more. And it's just like, oh, my gosh. Um, and, and so it had all these parallels. And I was not surprised. Um, the only thing I was surprised about listening to the press conference was that J-Pal took March off the table. Hmm. Right. And specifically, as a Fed um, former staffer, uh, the Fed... Uh, excels in like very vague intentionally mm-hmm. if you have i always say i have a very i have one of the best fed speak decoder rings i can sit there i can hear i've written i've written this stuff right like mm-hmm. i know how to parse it and so when he said it's like i almost fell out of my chair because it was mm-hmm. like so not <laughs> fed speak like mm-hmm. it's just it was kind of intense um anyways but i wasn't surprised that, and i've been saying for a long time that March was never going to happen. And at the earliest May, and we had kind of after listening to them on Wednesday, we might be kind of in that May, June space. But I think by May, it's going to be embarrassing given the inflation data if they don't do a first cut. So I think they will do one. Um, and the table pounding came from the fact that I firmly believe based on the data, based on reality and their job, that they should be cutting slowly, quarter percentage point. Sure. You know, I kind of gradually get it down. The And the basis for this, and I'm not done writing about this because <laughs> I saw a lot of misconceptions on today with the jobs data, um, is the, Fed, the Fed's mandate by law is stable prices and maximum employment. The way the Fed thinks about the stable price, they say 2% inflation, PC consumer expenditure prices. Okay. And, and over a 12 month period. And as Jay Powell said, we want to see it not just touch two and then bounce off. Like it wants to kind of like hang around there. Fine. Um, and then low unemployment, not really defined, but I think of it kind of like 
below we're at 4%, which is where we are now. Sure. Okay. So we are so close to their dual mandate, right? In the last six months, uh, inflation has averaged below 2%. Last three months has been under two percent, and I'm not asking for them to go from five and a quarter percent to three and a quarter percent in one meeting. I, it's 25 basis points is a good place to start because when they get to the dual mandate, like when they get the inflation down to two percent, by that point the Fed should be out of the way, right? That is their job, and out of the way, the Fed is here to stabilize the economy. We go into recession, they're there to help. If things get going a little too much and inflation starts to pick up, they're there to calm it down a little, right? But if things are in there, we're in a good place, we're chugging along in a a sustained expansion, they should have no opinions on nor be doing anything to influence is GDP growth 2% or 3%, is payrolls 300 or 200. If they've got their mandate, they should be done. And Mm -hmm. so it shouldn't be like, hey, do the first cut when you're at 2% inflation. It ought to be you're to this place where it's what's referred to as the neutral interest rate. So just the interest rate where the Fed isn't doing anything to the economy. I mean, you go ask somebody trying to buy a home in the US, hey, is the Fed doing anything to the economy? And they're like, "Uh uh-huh, right? Or a small business taking out a loan. And Mm -hmm. they say too, they're in a quote unquote, restrictive level, right? That it's slowing things down. I mean, they don't control the economy. So it couldn't, I mean, things are obviously going the other direction, but they are having an effect in interest rate sensitive sectors. We can argue about how much they need to lower to get to a, you know, where they're out of the way, but there's no way this neutral interest rate has moved up to 5%. There's just no way. So they need to get going. They want a lot of confidence. They see something like GDP growth last week that was awesome. The jobs day to day was awesome. And they have this turn of phrase. It gives them the luxury of time to get confident about inflation. And it is good that we have the labor market as strong as it is. We have consumers as strong. I'd written an earlier piece about you know, there's lights on the runway, right? These are all buffers for the Fed to, to do something stupid. But we shouldn't use that like as an excuse to like, like the American workers are not the Fed's security blanket for feeling good about inflation. So right. there is a little, but again, I watched it all unfold. This makes a lot of sense, both from what the Fed has been saying recently, what's happened in the recent past, and a lot of baggage that comes from the 1970s uh-huh. and the Fed. So this is where we are. And yet there's a lot of good stuff going on. Uh-huh. The Fed, they're, they're a risk factor right now. We're going to get the soft landing, the 2% inflation, the low unemployment. We're going to get it not because of the Fed, but in spite of them. Dr. Som, can you give us your views on, given how you see the Fed evolving this year, what you think it might mean for the treasury curve in terms of steeper or not, and where we might see some of the bigger moves uh, in the curve? Well, first I'll say that the with the treasuries, the Fed has a lot of influence on the short end mm-hmm. of the curve. So the two-year, the, you know, the, short, the real shorter durations, I mean, you can really see the Fed funds rate, right? The yep. Fed has said, everyone expects the Fed is going to cut. We don't know how much yet. They don't know how much yet. Right. But it's good. This should be data driven, right? So you'll see it in the short term interest rates. Clearly, the Fed doesn't control the long rates, right? It can 
push, it can nudge them around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I, you know, we've seen them, I mean, they go down when the Fed is like, we're going to cut, or they say something about cutting. Um, and, uh, and then a lot of the yield curve, although it has fallen spectacularly on its face the last few years in um, forecasting a recession, but it does have mm-hmm. like what people, their outlook and their growth. And we have seen it, um, it hasn't uninverted, but like as the, as we switched from a consensus, though not me, but the consensus had been a recession forecast. Mm, right. And that, I mean, that's what the yield curve is supposed to, you know, be a harbinger. Right. Um, of, and now we've switched to a no recession forecast. Mm-hmm. So that to the extent that it shows that, you know, the thing I'd say, to, which complicates everything is the fed. And I, and, to some extent, I think this could be a very plausible, and others have advanced this reason why the yield curve hasn't been as predictive is the Federal Reserve, you know, since uh, 2008-ish, has been using these, the quantitative easing tools. So the asset purchases, the asset sales, they're involved in treasury markets in a way that is not just like monkeying around with the federal funds rate and, and influencing expectations. Like they're right. actually in the, the plumbing yeah. and it's not clear. I mean, the fed and markets frankly kind of disagree on how quantitative easing, quantitative tightening work. I mean, really, right. I think everyone would feel better. And I think this is also for the fed if they just like weren't doing this. St- like I, I, it's entirely possible. They start tapering off quantitative tightening before uh-huh. they, do a rate cut. I mean, it, they are laying the path to, we want to get out uh-huh. of this. It's just, it's, yeah. So I think it's actually pretty hard to, and it, as the Fed is doing this pivot from, they've been raising and held and they're going to start cutting. And that has a lot of, I mean, anytime you're in the market, there's an expectations piece that's so important. So kind of handling that transition. Uh, and then there's, they're just under the hood. Uh-huh which I'm not an expert in the balance sheet mechanics, but it it is in there. And that could be, I mean, to me, the biggest risk of the Fed is not in the quote unquote real economy, is they do something to markets, they break something. Well, Dr. Salma, I want to thank you very much for your time today. Really, really enjoyed the discussion and really appreciate your insights. And uh, we'd love to continue the conversation at some point, maybe later this year or early next and see how the U.S. economy develops and maybe talk about the rule, maybe not if you don't want to talk about it anymore, but we'd love to, <laughs> we'd love to catch up and, and have you back. But thank you for your time today. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Dustin, that was a wonderful conversation we had with Dr. Som. I learned a lot. Uh, it's funny, I'm reflecting on the two conversations that we've had this year. We had Francois Tehran on first episode. He was extremely bearish uh, yep. on the economy and prospects for 24. Dr. Som, mm-hmm. far more optimistic. She talked a lot about uh, you know employment hanging in there fairly well and, and yep. uh, just painted a more optimistic future. I really enjoy my position in these conversations and at this organization because uh, I don't manage the money and they both sounded equally compelling so maybe over to you Dustin how do do you make sense of uh, both of them and presumably you're taking different things from each of them 
Yeah, for sure. We'll have to get you over uh, to the investments division for a, a month <laughs> so or something. You don't want that, Dustin, yeah. <laughs> Just for fun. Um, I, I thought both conversations were unbelievably fascinating, maybe for similar reasons and maybe for different reasons. I mean, I think that from a structural perspective, I think that the f- the in this case the Fed, but many central banks, but let's just take the Fed. I think the Fed's uh, reaction function and playbook is is different since 2020. I think 2020 really changed things. I mean, obviously 2020 was a very challenging year on many levels for many people, for society, right. and you know we all know the rationale. But we saw something happen in 2020 that I had not really seen in my career, where kind of this dual-pronged approach where not only rates became extremely accommodative very, very quickly, the reaction function was very fast, but all these other programs to kind of support assets were also uh, very quickly brought into the fold. Right. And for those of us that might be a couple years on, if you recall, and we're in markets 08, 09, 07, 08, 09, things got done for sure, but it took a lot longer. And I think the playbook is now very different. And the Fed and other central banks, if something goes wrong, it or they, however you want to say it, will will be in into the market, whether that's kind of the alphabet soup with various programs and acronyms or the actual policy rate a lot quicker now. And so, you know, Francois, I think probably has a different opinion there. And that, and that is absolutely fair. But I think the reaction function is probably a little bit, a little bit uh, faster and a little more, a little quicker. And I think that's probably where Dr. Som is on this uh, maybe not saying it quite in those ways, but you know, looking at uh, you know, as a former Fed staffer, um, the Fed models, the mandate from Congress, this is what it should be doing. It's not going to wait around. Real rates are X. And, you know, these are things that you and I have talked about a lot on the McKenzie Investments podcast, right? And uh, a view that I think we've had, you know, particularly within fixed income, but I would say kind of cross cross firm, at least in the investment side, for a while now. So. I do tend to think that the Fed will will be there, and that's one of the reasons why, from a fixed income perspective, I do you know in this tagline of I think the front end is going to do the heavy lifting, front end rates lower because uh, and the curve steepener broadly over time. I mean there'll be periods where maybe it doesn't line up, but you know over step back over three, you know, six months or nine months, you're going to see that shape continue. I mean we've obviously seen a pretty big steepening since May of last year, May of 23, but the front end can still do a fair bit of heavy lifting because as I I. Dr. Som said, and I believe what she says, that the Fed really has an impact on the front end of the curve. So if the Fed cuts 150 or 200 right. this year, or maybe from now into early 25 or what have you, two-year notes are going to be probably significantly lower in terms of yield. When price, right. is higher, price is higher, yields lower. And I think, I mean, depending on how the economy goes, obviously, and earnings go, I think that's probably constructive for risk. I mean, obviously, risk and equities and credit spreads have moved a fair bit already and lots in the price, and that's totally fair. But if the Fed has this new mantra of we and Dr. Song kind of alluded to this, and that was actually really interesting when she said it, but I'll say it maybe slightly differently. We, are, we, the Fed, are going to cut rates to prevent slower growth as opposed to we need to see slower growth and then we're going to react and cut rates. I think that that change, that it's not a play on words per se, but that change in mantra, we are going to cut rates to prevent slower growth 
can help risk assets. And that's why risk assets may, ch- may trade a little bit different this cycle than previous cycles, because we have a structural difference, I think, on how the Fed's re- and other central banks, to be fair, I don't want to just single out the Fed, but how the Fed's reaction function might might play out now and, and maybe for you know, who knows? Who knows how long? Maybe the duration of our careers maybe maybe longer. So I think that's right. really interesting, and I, I you know I took a lot from Dr. Som's view on that. Um, you know, and I think she's also saying that in, in a way that Fed does not need to see the unemployment rate move significantly higher to ease rates. And again, it kind of goes back to this idea of you know we we can ease rates to prevent slower growth. We don't need to see slower growth right. to ease rates. I think that's like all of that is kind of under the same umbrella and this new-ish mantra and new playbook, I think that the Fed has probably adopted. I don't know for sure, for sure, but I think that's the case uh, since 2020. You kind of saw a little bit of an appetizer last year. So with SVB uh, in in March, right? right? Fed came in very quickly, not on the yep. rate side. It actually kept hiking rates, to be fair. Mm-hmm. But it came in with a new program very, very quickly within a matter of uh, a day or two, a ba- uh, one or two business days. Right. And I think that exact, that's the appetizer. That is exactly, I think, the new MO playbook for the Fed. So, you know, how, you know, barring some geopolitical event, which obviously can happen, and there are many, many things that can happen. You and I talk about that a lot on, sure. you know, various forums. Um uh, you know, I think from a fundamental perspective, I think, you know, risk assets are, are still interesting here. And uh, the front end of the curve has a fair bit of heavy lifting to do and curve can steepen out a fair bit. So, yeah, a great conversation with Dr. Song. Really, really glad we got the privilege to have her on the podcast. Yeah, super, super interesting, fascinating conversation. I, I really keyed in on the fact, and you've sort of touched on it as well, just this idea about the Fed getting out of the way, getting to neutral rates before you get that sustained 2% yeah. uh, inflation, which is yeah. an extension of what you're saying as well uh-huh. as sort of those emergency backstop uh, right. and the speed at which they will act now. So yeah. um, really great conversation, Dustin. I look forward to our next one. Same here. Thanks again. Great to do this with you. content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.